You're listening to the Monash Arts Podcast. So one of the things that is happening when people are talking about robots or the media is reporting on robots is that we're really uh, thinking about what it means to be human and often what's really driving conversation about robotics is anxiety about our own circumstances or what's happening in the world or the human condition. Uh, So I'm Professor Rob Sparrow. I'm in the philosophy program at Monash University, and I work on the ethics of new science and technology and in political philosophy. Increasingly, of course, when we think about the future, we actually think about social change as being driven by technological change. So I became interested in the politics and the ethics of technology because often it's these things that are shaping our future, and they also raise some fairly old philosophical issues in new ways, and that has enabled me to do what I hope to be some interesting philosophical work that's also relevant to public policy debate. I mean, in general, I'm looking for something where there's a social or political impact, but my specific skill set as a philosopher can make a contribution. One of the things I've been interested in in writing about robotics is also thinking about relations between people and the significance of our attitudes and our character in our treatment of each other and in our treatment of animals. And thinking about robots and thinking about the ethical issues raised by robotics actually allows you to do some philosophical work thinking about these other questions. But it's also true that increasingly we're dealing with artificial intelligence in our daily lives. If you've ever applied for a housing loan or uh, booked an air ticket or bought things off Amazon or spend any time on Facebook, then you're interacting with an artificial intelligence that the data that's being presented to you and your own data is being analysed by computer programs that are really quite sophisticated and do pattern recognition. So again, it's kind of easy and fun to think about a world where artificial intelligences are embodied and you know controlling robots, but even if they're not, they're already in our electronic devices. It's also true that the military has taken to robotics in a big way a system like the Predator or the Reaper, uninhabited combat aerial vehicle. Uh, These are these drones that are being used as I speak. There'll be several of these aircraft above Syria, above uh, Afghanistan, above Pakistan, above Iraq. And those systems are remote controlled for a significant portion of their operations, but also have the capacity to fly themselves. Uh, So they're a robot. Your automatic teller machine's a robot. Your washing machine's a robot. So, you know, robots, they move amongst us. Uh, We don't always recognise them as such because they're not waving their arms about. I guess some of the most widespread robots are actually consumer toys nowadays. If you went into Toys R Us and were shopping for Christmas presents for your children, various uh, dolls or action figures, as they're called, if you're buying them for a boy, would actually be quite sophisticated robots. The millions of small mechanical servants that never ask for afternoons off. The amazing machines and gadgets that almost seem to think for themselves. The tiny clockwork brains and heat regulators on our kitchen stoves apparently do almost everything except read the cookbook. 
Thinking machines like this keep golden brown slices of toast from turning into slabs of charcoal and keep the coffee hot until we're ready to start dunking. I've been interested in thinking about our character, thinking about what's called Aristotelian virtue ethics, which is a way of resolving ethical questions by asking what kind of person should I be or what sort of person would do this. And sometimes we learn something about what kind of person we are through our interactions with a a robot. So if, for instance, you came home and you discovered that your child was torturing their robotic dinosaur, uh, you might worry about their character. If you discovered that your partner, you know, had taken a baseball bat to the head of your domestic cleaning robot, you might worry about what does it say about them or, or what sort of person would do that. In other contexts, I think robots are having quite real impacts on relations between people and we need to think about robots and computer systems as actually a new media whereby one group of people, the designers, are influencing the behaviour of another group of people, the consumers, and the politics of that relation are under-analysed. In aged care, where not Furby, but there's a robotic seal called Paro has been rolled out into aged care facilities around the world as a sort of form of high-tech pet therapy. I think we should be thinking about what it says about our attitudes towards our um, older citizens that we think, you know, leaving them at home with a robot is a good way of responding to their needs for contact and companionship. So these these technologies are having real-world impacts, not least because they shape the way we relate to each other. Often during the day, you will find Jock here in her room, alone. She tends to be very uh, self-isolating. She starts to cry. She doesn't want to talk to people. Hi. How are you? So caregivers at the Sunnyview Retirement Community spend a lot of time trying to get her engaged. Would you like to have some company? No. And few things have a more dramatic effect than visits by this very special furry friend. I need your tail. Jock has always loved animals, but she's never met one quite like this. He's purring. Paro is a seal. More specifically, a $7,000 robot seal. I was originally interested in writing about robots and computers because I was just interested in some questions in moral psychology and philosophy of mind. But in the course of some of my early research on uh, robots, I discovered how much cutting-edge robotics research was funded by the military. And I actually wrote one of the first papers on the ethics of what's come to be known as autonomous weapon systems. So these are military robots where the targeting decision is being made by an onboard computer rather than by a human being who's controlling it by remote control from another location. The prospect that in the future the sort of the drones will be cut loose and they will be choosing who lives or dies by themselves is a fairly disturbing one. And that paper has actually been taken up in a literature about autonomous weapon systems. It allowed me to make contact with other researchers working on drones and military robotics. And with a number of colleagues in the UK and the United States, I actually formed an organisation called the International Committee for Robot Arms Control that has ended up having a tremendous influence in contemporary policy debates about military robotics. That organisation had a number of meetings and produced a declaration that uh, 
then became a sort of touchstone for people thinking about military robotics and has subsequently led, along with activities of other people, to an international campaign to stop killer robots and to the early stages of arms control negotiations about autonomous weapon systems that have been taking place in Geneva in the last couple of years. Uh, This is as part of discussions around a thing called the Convention Concerning Certain Conventional Weapons, which is an arms control regime that looks at weapon systems like blinding lasers or fragmenting bullets. And for the last couple of years, the international organisations and governments around that treaty have been considering whether they should ban autonomous weapon systems. So I'm quite pleased that that research was taken up and is actually now contributing to and shaping debates about uh, the future of military robotics. So because of my work on robotics, I've been receiving lots of invitations to speak at conferences on driverless vehicles and intelligent transport systems. There are a set of ethical dilemmas essentially around the who a machine should kill or whose life it should save when a collision's unavoidable. These are in a philosophical tradition known as trolley problems, where you imagine a sort of out of control tram is going to run over four people unless you pull a switch which changes the tracks. That'll mean that it runs over and kills one person instead. This has been a sort of topic of philosophical debate for decades, whether or not one should pull the switch, whether or not it makes a difference if instead of pulling the switch you actually have to push someone in front of the tram in order to dislodge it so it runs onto empty tracks. So again, you're still one person would die rather than four, but the difference between pulling a lever and pushing someone onto the tracks often people think that's morally significant. So yes, it's easy to imagine that uh, driverless vehicles will have to make these kind of sudden decisions, perhaps to crash into a car or to crash into a, a motorcyclist, killing one or killing four. I think one of the things that's most interesting about that is the way uh, making this an algorithm actually shifts responsibility onto an engineer somewhere, or indeed perhaps an ethicist working with the company building the the navigation software, uh, rather than onto the drivers. And that centralisation of responsibility for ethical decisions is another example of how computers and robots change power relations. One of my hats is as a chief investigator in the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Electromaterials Science, which is a federally funded multi-university and multidisciplinary research centre looking at producing 3D structured nanomaterials. I'm one of a number of philosophers involved in that centre looking at the ethical and policy issues that future technologies are made possible by 3D 3D structured nanomaterials might raise. My own contribution has been to think about the ethical issues that would be raised by creating artificial organs. There's an enormous amount of interest in using 3D printers to actually print human cells. People can already print simple biological structures like uh, sections of bladder. And so in the future, maybe we'll be able to actually print kidneys or structures that become kidneys. I've been interested in the the status of those organs when they're in the human body and how something that is a device 
outside of the human body and that you might buy and sell and might come with a warranty changes when we place it inside a human body. We actually don't think of ourselves as owning our bodies. If you think of yourself as owning your body, well, who owns your body? And we certainly don't think that if you get into debt to your credit card company, they can say, well, hey, you've got an asset. Um, let's take one of your kidneys. Our relationship with our own viscera is not one of ownership. We have rights over them, but they're not property rights. So I've been interested in the transition in the status of artificial organs. When they're outside the body, they're property. When they're inside the body, they're not. How does that work? When one imagines a future in which artificial organs are possible, it's natural to be begin wondering about the possibility that they might actually be better than our ordinary organs and whether or not that would transform the human condition. Uh, what it means to be human is to be fleshy and to be mortal. It's probably already the case that, for instance, uh, someone with a cochlear implant, which is a device that was developed to replace a part of the middle ear, that person can already, you know, directly channel internet radio stations into their head in a way where you and I would actually have to have an extra layer of transmission across an air barrier. With a boom microphone, someone with a cochlear implant can have super hearing, at least in a very limited domain. Uh, it has to be said that in other areas, cochlear implants are still vastly inferior to actual natural human hearing. But still, the moment we start connecting technologies to the human body, we can connect them to electronic infrastructure, including the web, in ways that might give people better than human capacities. A lot of my work on genetics has actually been about what's come to be known as human enhancement and whether or not there would be anything wrong with using, uh, for instance, this new gene editing technology called CRISPR-Cas9, which is a very powerful tool of genetic engineering, could be used to put new genes, including genes from other species, into human embryos and so you'd have a transgenic human being and if you can find the right genes to modify you might be able to give someone a capacity that no human being had ever had before. I'm not convinced that there's anything straightforwardly wrong with extending human capacities. We're already, for instance, we live longer today than human beings ever have before and most of us don't regret that. You don't often hear someone saying, oh, isn't it terrible that male life expectancy uh, in Melbourne isn't 40 anymore? It's so unnatural that we can expect to live to 87. I would encourage people to find a topic that they're passionate about. It's very hard to spend the amount of time thinking and studying about one topic that you need to do to successfully complete graduate studies if you're not personally interested or committed to the project. Choose a, a supervisor that you admire and whose research and talents you admire. It can be quite a lonely business graduate study, so having a good relationship with a supervisor is very important. Because it can be lonely, you need to try to build a cohort around you, um, so you need to try to talk to other graduate students and not think of this just as something you do outside of the university, but think of yourself as part of the university community. Mm -hmm.